I am, uh, I'm torn a little bit this morning. Uh, I am excited to preach this message. I'm excited uh, more than ever to, to celebrate baptism. This is just one of my favorite things in the world to see and be a part of. Uh, but I also know that there is a lot of people uh, in our country uh, hurting and, and devastation this morning because of Hurricane Ian. And so um, I want to, I just want to acknowledge that and let all of our people know that uh, our missions director, Ryan Smith, that we're already uh, working on organizing some groups and teams we partner with, uh, the Baptist Mission uh, something and uh, the Samaritan's Purse and another group. And we usually just, whatever group lets us go first, that's who we lock in with. Um, and so this is something, uh, her, unfortunately, Hurricane Relief has become a huge outreach uh, opportunity for us over the last few years. I hate that that's the truth, um, you know, but it, I love that our people have such a heart of giving and serving. And so I just wanted to uh, just take a moment before we start the service today. And I just want to pray uh, because I think it's so easy for us um, to, to just sit and be this morning, not realizing there are people still missing, there are people still um, trapped, uh, that there's just you know, billions of dollars worth of damage, that people's lives will never be the same. And I just felt that heavy this morning. So just as a, as a church family, as a, as a family of God this morning, I want us just to spend a few minutes praying. And then as soon as we have opportunities, uh, we will let them, you know, let you guys know. A couple of you have already started asking, and we'll definitely be sending teams over the next, uh, as soon as they let us in, as soon as we can do that. So let's just pray this morning and just for them and for everybody involved. Father God, we just come before you, Lord, thankful for your goodness, thankful for your mercy, God. And I just pray, Lord, uh, while we sit here in this room this morning, while there's uh, so many of us sitting at home with our families or our friends at House Church, God, I know, Lord, that there are people uh, right now just facing absolute, utter devastation. I know, Father, that there is uh, families who have been ripped apart, God. There's families who have lost loved ones. I know that there is tragedy uh, around every corner. I know, Father, that financially uh, people will just face devastation for years to come. Uh, and Father, I just pray, Lord, only you can move in a moment like this. Only you can bring peace, God, in a moment like this. And only you can uh, reach out to the heart, Father, and comfort those who need it this morning. And Father, I just pray, Lord, because your word asks us to, Father God. I pray for all of those affected by this. I pray for every family. I pray for every man, every woman, every child. And I pray, Lord, that you will just comfort them, Father, and that somehow, some way, in your wisdom and in your power, Lord, that you would use this, God, for goodness in their life, that you would use them to turn them to you in some way. Father God, I pray, Lord, only you could bring goodness out of such a tragedy, God, but I've seen you do it before, and I know you'll do it again. Thank you, Lord, for the opportunity uh, that we have to serve in this moment. I pray that you'll bless us in this, give us wisdom in this, God, uh, in your holy name, amen. amen. Thank you, guys. Um, so we want to move forward in our vision series, um, and this is something that uh, if it's your first time here or if you've, if you've been you know, on, on summer vacay for a while, uh, we have moved forward in, in building our new building over on the new land. Uh, we have uh, celebrated the last 10 years and everything that God has done, uh, but we are looking in, uh, at the next 45 days as a, as a foundational 
uh, time for the next 10 years of ministry that I believe God is going to let us do in this community. And, and the things the Lord has laid on our hearts, the things, the, the doors that God has opened, the possibilities, they are endless because we serve a unlimited God. Uh, and it's just been incredible to see uh, the way God's already moving, already providing. Um, and and uh, we have a big day, November 14th uh, is going to be our giving Sunday uh, for all of that. And people have been asking for the exact date. And I wanted to be honest with you. I just kept saying 45 days because I didn't want to give you the exact date yet uh, until we got the final appraisal numbers back in which we did this week. Uh, and this is huge. And so I just wanted to uh, share this and celebrate. Uh, all of our appraisals came back. Uh, we uh, owe uh, under 300000 on the land and it appraised for $1.6 million, which was significant. That's awesome. <laughs> This building right here and the five acres that's on it, uh, we paid a million dollars for. It appraised at $3 million. So that's going to, yeah, significant. That's awesome. And then we have one or two smaller pieces of property that, that it was almost double uh, what we paid for it. And so it was, it was also significant. So um, we've got, uh, this is the deal. So basically that was the last small little question mark. We knew that it was going to be good, but we are more than good. We are super golden. Uh, the, CD, uh, the, the church development group, uh, our, our investors, the, are, we're getting our funding through. They are pumped. They're excited. And we're going to actually have a, uh, a digital uh, introduction to them in the weeks following because I just want everybody to know each other involved in this process. Uh, and so I just want you to know that was the last and final hanging mark and that, and it is, we're good. We're good to go. So here's the deal. Without a doubt, we're going to build this building and we're going to start this year. So that's absolutely incredible. There was no doubt before, but you know, there's just, there's, when you're at 99.9%, .9%, there's a little fear of this, that, that one little piece. And that was, and that was it. So I just want to celebrate that this morning. Uh, and I want to kind of get that out of the way. And, and I, I want to move into the message, um, because the message this morning is heavy for me. You know, I think when we talked, we spent the last few weeks talking about the cause of Christ, talking about the expansion of the church, not just not pursuit church, but the church um, and the, the, the church, the gathering, the ecclesia that Christ promised that he would build. And I think sometimes when we, when we start talking about expansion and we start talking about even reaching people and we, we start using this language because this is truly the mission of Jesus is to reach people. It's to, it's to, it's to reach out into the darkness, to, to lead them to Christ, to lead people who do not know Jesus, to lead people far from Christ uh, to salvation in Jesus. That, that what we're doing is not a temporary game. This is an eternal reality uh, that, that the church of Jesus Christ is called to. And so I think sometimes when we, when we start talking about the expansion of the church and we start talking about the crazy, amazing things that God is leading specifically our, our church to be a part of, and we start talking about the crazy prayers that I hope everybody's praying, the seven prayers the Lord has laid on our hearts, you know, about aligning our hearts and uh, with his will and providing for us and, and expanding our impact and saving uh, the lost, that when we, when we start praying those prayers and, and turning our hearts over to God and humbling ourselves before the Lord, uh, sometimes I think that, that we forget what that really means when in, in terms of salvation. When we're talking about expanding, we are talking about leading people far from God to salvation in Christ. 
And so often I think that, that we not just water down salvation, but that we forget what it really is and what it really means to us. And so as a part of this 45 days, I wanted to go back and I want us to look at the fundamental foundation of what it is that Christ came to accomplish on the cross, what, he, what part of his, his purpose was and what he's really looking for uh, in us and in this world, what makes heaven celebrate and, and what salvation really is. And so as, as I've studied over the last few weeks preparing for this message in particular, this has been a heavy one for me. Uh, I, the Lord has led me uh, over the last few weeks to study what is most famously known as the prodigal son. Just, just to prove a point, however many, how many people have heard of the prodigal son? Okay, everybody that's awake and, and listening. Um, this, is, this is one of the most famous stories of Jesus uh, across the world. Within the church, outside the church, within believers, outside believers. Um, there are authors, famous like Mark Twain, uh, who contribute and say that, that the prodigal son story is probably the greatest short story ever told in history. Everybody knows this story. Uh, and and the, the heart of this story, though, uh, gets placed heavily on who? The prodigal son. But the, the problem is that Jesus was actually teaching and speaking to a very specific point. That the prodigal son, this parable that Jesus gives us in Luke 15, is part of a three-parable response to a very specific situation that was happening. And to be able to take in the depths of, of the prodigal son, to be able to take in the, the true power that exists in this story, the wisdom and the knowledge that Jesus gives us, it is absolutely a necessity that we understand the full context of Luke 15 as a chapter uh, because everything is connected. There is a situation in, in, that introduces itself in Luke 15, verse 1. And I want us to look at this because everything that comes, there's three parables that Jesus gives, two short ones, and then the prodigal son, he gives it as a response to this situation. In this situation, if we can understand it, then we can know who Jesus is truly talking to and the point that he is truly making, and it will unlock the story uh, in a unique way, I think, that has deeply encouraged me, deeply refocused me. And I believe we'll do the same thing in our hearts and our minds this morning. And I believe that it might even lead to someone coming to know Jesus Christ this morning. And so I want to look at this in Luke 15, uh, uh, verse 1 and 2. This is the situation that presents itself. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered or grumbled, this man welcomes sinners and he eats with them. So this is the situation in verses one and two. This is the situation that is here. This is a situation that Jesus is actually going to respond to. So it's important that we get what's happening here. Uh, the tax collectors and the sinners, they're gathering around to listen to Jesus. They, they, they are there to hear Jesus. They've sought Jesus out. Uh, this was something that was incredibly commonly known, uh, that sinners and people who were far from God genuinely loved to be around Jesus. They wanted to hear from Jesus, and Jesus seemed to really like being around them, that they spent a lot of time together. He didn't just welcome them here, it says, but he's dining with them. He's eating with them. Sharing a meal in this culture is significant. 
And so to understand tax collectors, you know, people act like things have changed. Uh, people still hate tax collectors to this day. No, there's no real need to explain this one. Uh, it just accept to go that, that uh, tax collectors in this day and age in scripture uh, were deeply corrupt. They were seen as deeply evil, deeply wicked because they stole and profited off their brothers and sisters in Israel. And so they were, they were hated and given their own category of evil, just simply called tax collectors. And then sinners, this is just the, the name for those who are far from God, those who are not really religious, those who do not know God, uh, that these are just people who just, they're kind of godless by nature. These are the names, and this is important that we understand this. These are the names that, that the culture came up with for these, for these people. And so the tax collectors and the sinners are there to listen to Jesus. They are genuinely uh, hungry for whatever it is that Jesus has to say. The Pharisees, which were the, the religious leaders and, and the, the teachers of the law, which was another sect of the religious leaders, uh, they were there, but they were not there to necessarily hear Jesus. They were there to more than likely at this point uh, uh, where we are in Jesus' life, more than likely there to condemn Jesus and to look for reasons uh, to oppose Jesus, to, to, to attack Jesus. One of the greatest ways that the, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law and the religious leaders opposed Jesus uh, was uh, uh, that, that they, they came up with this story uh, be, that Jesus' power did not come from God, but that it came from Satan. They struggled with Jesus because Jesus seemed to adamantly oppose them in their way of life. And so in order for them to kind of oppose him politically and, and, and attack Jesus, uh, they had to disconnect Jesus from being from God because if Jesus was a prophet or Jesus was from God uh, in their eyes, then they couldn't really go against him because he's from God. But they could not explain his power. They could not explain the way he healed the sick and he opened up blind eyes and his authority and his knowledge and his wisdom. And it was so clear that he had power and they had to be able to explain that. And so they came up with the story that they spread. They slandered Jesus and said that his power it didn't come from God, but it came from Satan. One of the greatest ways that they then went around to try to prove this point was to isolate Jesus and to continually talk about the reality that he loved being around sinners and he was comfortable around sinners and evil people, but that he was not comfortable around the righteous ones themselves. And this was how they, they kind of proved their point uh, to the culture and to anybody that would listen that Jesus's power comes from Satan, not from God, because look, all he's ever with is with sinners and tax collectors. He would rather be around wicked people and evil people rather than be around us, the perfectly righteous. Right? You know anybody like that? Don't look. And so this is the situation. In particular, they struggled with the fact that he welcomed them, he was nice to them, he did not condemn them, and that he dined with them, he spent time with them, and he invested in them. And out of response to this situation, specifically what the Pharisees have going on in their own heart, Jesus responds with three parables, two short ones in the prodigal son. The first two, I'm just gonna summarize and share a scripture out of each one so that we can get the main point. The first parable is the one with the lost sheep. Jesus immediately responds to this situation. He says, hey, if there's a guy that's got 100 sheep, one sheep goes away, he loses one sheep, it gets lost. He says, doesn't he leave the 99 sheep where they are in their pasture? And he goes and he looks for the one lost sheep until he finds it. Everybody knows the song Reckless Love, right? It's one of the most famous Christian songs. And it's got, he leave the 99 if ain't the one God's love, right? <laughs> I know, I need to sing. No need to tell me. You're a triple threat. I know, I know. 
I got it. I can dance too. Ask my wife. There's nothing that makes her fall on the ground laughing as hard as me dancing. Uh, my daughter, she's actually a very good dancer. She's like a little ballerina. And we turn on the music and her and her little sister dance. And then me and Hudson, we just clump around like gorillas. It's quite, it's quite funny. I can't dance and I can't sing. But that song has made uh, this parable super famous. But the reality of this parable uh, yes, Jesus goes after the one, 100%. Thank God for that. But the reality of this parable is that was not really the main point at all. The main point of the parable well, of, of the 99 sheep, he leaves and goes to the one and finds the one, was the way that the man rejoices when he finds the one sheep. And in Luke 15, verse 7, uh, he, he tells you the point, point blank. This, this is not one you got to dig deep. Jesus tells you. The point of the parable is this. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. So the primary point, are there other good stuff in that parable? 100%. But, but is it the primary point that Jesus wants us to know because he's setting up the Pharisees. Just so you know, he's speaking directly to the Pharisees. He is addressing this situation. He's addressing the issues in their heart and, and over why he spends so much time with sinners and why he dines with them, uh, why he invests in them. And he's speaking to them. He's not even really speaking to the sinners, though they're gonna get something out of this. He's speaking to the Pharisees and he's making the primary point. He says, I need you to understand what I'm talking about and what I'm teaching about and what I'm about to lay out is repentance and celebration. Repentance and celebration. Heaven is looking for repentance in the human heart, in the human life. That is the point of parable one. Parable two, very similarly, Jesus says, and if there is a woman who has 10 coins and she loses one in her house, isn't it true that she does everything in her power to find that lost coin? And when she finds that lost coin, she calls her neighbors, they come together and they celebrate and they rejoice and they party over the fact that she found this one coin. And then in Luke 15, 10, he again gives you the exact point of why he's telling that parable. And in Luke 15, 10, it says, in the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So everybody, nobody needs to go to seminary. What is the main point Jesus is trying to get across right here? Repentance. All right, we're going to try it one more time. What's the main point? Jesus is trying to, one, three. One, two, three. Repentance. Repentance and celebration. Repentance. Repentance is what Jesus is talking about. Repentance is the point of the first two parables. Repentance and celebration. Jesus wants everybody listening in all of history to know that the one thing heaven's looking for in the life of the human heart is repentance. Repentance is what makes heaven celebrate. Repentance is what makes joy rise up in the presence of angels. It is repentance. Repentance equals the celebration of heaven. He then continues into the story of the prodigal son. And I want, as we go through this, I want to make sure that we do not miss the context that Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees, that Jesus is responding uh, to this muttering and grumbling in their heart uh, towards the fact that he spends so much time with sinners. Uh, and the first two parables set up this third parable that it is about repentance, that what we are about to see and what we are about to read is going to be connected to uh, directly explaining uh, the power of repentance and what repentance is and how and why 
why that equals so much celebration and joy, both in the repented life and in heaven itself. That this is the, this is the foundation. This is the lens at which we have to, to read this parable through. So in Luke 15, verse 7, verse 11, it says, Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Now, I don't have all the time to get into to the, the power of this and the cultural background in this, but the thing that you do need to know uh, is that this is the worst possible thing a son could ever say to a father, that this was the worst of the worst. Jesus, and you'll, you'll notice this as you, we go through the next few verses, Jesus is making sure in this parable that they understand, the, the Israelites uh, and the, the Jewish leaders, the religious leaders, that they understand that what he is describing is not just somebody who has sinned, not just somebody who transgressed the law. What he is about to describe is the worst of the worst of the worst of the worst in every way, shape, and form. And he starts off with this request right here. The, for a son, especially in this day and age, it's in no generation is this a positive thing. But in this culture and in this day and age right here, everybody would have known the absurdity of this. In fact, most people would have responded in this, in this uh, culture, most people would have responded by beating or having the son arrested or thrown in prison. Because the, for the son to come and say, give me what's mine, this is the son rebelling against the father and, not, and saying to the father, I want your stuff, but I want you dead. Because normally you did not get a thing until the father died. So for you to come up and demand it, it was to say, I want to live my life without you. I don't want access to this stuff. I want this stuff to be mine, and I don't want you in the picture. This very closely mirrors and mimics what we learn in Romans 1 when Paul writes down kind of the fall of man and the, the transgression of of sin and the way sin works in the human heart and human mind. The first thing that, that Romans 1 dictates is not an actionable sin, not like lying or stealing. The first thing uh, and the worst sin of all time is to, to live a life where you do not acknowledge the God who created you and where you're not, you, you don't acknowledge him. And so there's no gratefulness in your heart that you literally look to the heavens and it says that you start to deny the truth of his existence, that you wanna live your life like he's not there. That the, the way Romans says it is that you start to trade the glory of God and the glory of a creator uh, for images on the earth and for created things, that you start to take your eyes off of heaven and off of God and off the creator and you want all of the world that he created, you just wanna live your life like he's not there though. You want to take the breath in your lungs. You want to take the time that he's given you. You want to take your talent and abilities and all the things that he's put around you. And you want to live your life. You just want to live your life the way you want to live your life with zero acknowledgement of God, denying the truth even of his very existence. That this was the, the heart of sin that led to all of the deep evil wickedness of actionable sins. And so this son to come up, this is, this is what Jesus is teaching. It's the same thing uh, that, that, that Paul is teaching in Romans 1. He, in this parable, he's saying that, that a true a sinner, this, they, they, they don't acknowledge God. They don't have any respect or reverence for God. They don't want to live under God's roof. They don't want anything to do with God, just like the son doesn't want anything to do with the father. And so he, he moves on. It says, not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. He just went crazy. He just went crazy, specifically with prostitutes. 
He just went, and the reason that Jesus puts this in here is because, again, in this culture, this was the, 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 the worst of the worst of the worst. The, to, to be with a prostitute in Israel culture, that was, that was the worst of the worst sins, the way that that culture perceived that. It says that, that he went to a distant country. If you go through, again, Jesus, Jesus uh, is speaking to this culture, to the Israel. Every, if you go through and you read the Old Testament and you know anything about Israel's culture, any time that, that uh, Israelite finds themselves in a distant country, uh, it is because they have sinned deeply and they are under judgment of God. He also goes in and says that, that he takes every, all the wealth, all the things, and that he basically just wastes it and squanders it and gives it away to nothingness until the world takes everything from him. And then it says that, that uh, in verse 14, after he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his field to feed pigs. So he becomes a hired slave or servant Again, of someone from a distant country and his job was to feed pigs. I know that this doesn't, I mean, we probably think little piglets are super cute. I know that a lot of people eat a lot of bacon. I know that, that <laughs> pigs are not seen uh, in our culture the way they are in this culture. Uh, but the pigs are, again, the dirtiest of the dirty. They did not touch them. They did not want them. They did not eat them. Pig, they did not let pigs hang out in Israel. Uh, they, were, they were seen as unclean. So you have Jesus taking in, in every way he can can in this story, every way he can in this parable, he is making, this is the point of the younger brother, that he was deeply evil, that he was deeply wicked, and that he spent his life as far away from God and as far away from God's law as humanly possible. Like that, that, that he's, he's not just a sinner, he is the sinner of sinner of sinners. And that his life was as far away from God and as far away from God's law as could possibly be. That, that that's who the younger son was. That's the, the point that Jesus is making. That it doesn't get worse than this. And so uh, as, he, as he goes on, it says that uh, he longed to fill his stomach with pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. In verse 17, it says, when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and he went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to the father, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. So what, if you remember, what is the primary point of these parables? Repentance. Repentance. And right in this moment, we see repentance. Right in this moment, we see repentance. Before we look at what repentance is, in the depths and its power. I want us to look at the father's response to repentance. We're gonna look at repentance in just a minute, but before that, I wanna see the father's response to repentance. But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. 
Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they begin to celebrate. This is what the, I, I, it's so hard in our culture to really honestly teach and for us to truly get the depths of how far this son was, how far he had gone, how much evil he had, he had done, and how much he had hurt the father, the, the sense of wickedness at which he treated his father with. It's difficult for us to truly grasp that and to understand it in this day and age. But he was as far as you could get and as wicked as you could get and as evil as you could get. But when he comes back, really before he even repents, just showing back up, it says that the father ran out to him and grabbed him and hugged him and kissed him and had compassion on him. And that he truly repents. And then the father responds, and this is so epic. It's greater than you could ever do in a whole series. The father responds by then making him a full son again. I don't want to go into all the depth just from a time's sake, but the robe and the ring and the sandals, slaves did not wear sandals or shoes, uh, but sons did. So the sandals on his feet, that's him saying, listen, you're my son. The ring back on his finger, uh, the heart of that was giving him authority, specifically the financial authority. This was him putting the robe around him and saying, you're not going to be a slave. You're not going to be a servant. You're going to be my son, but not just my son. You're going to have full access back to the estate. This was a full reconciliation. This was a full reinstatement to sonship. This was not, this was not just you can come be my son. Uh, this was not just don't be a slave. This was everything is gonna be as it was before you left. This is epic. This is, this is insane. In this day and age, again, if they had even asked that question, there's a good chance the father would have just beat the snot out of him right then and there and been done with it. But this, this father gives it to him. He goes out, he squanders it, he wastes it. He goes through so far from God and the, the most wretched things possible. And then he comes back and without hesitation, the father just loves him and blesses him, brings him back in, makes him a son. And then beyond that, he throws this huge party and he kills the fattened calf. And then they go into the house and they celebrate. We find out in a minute there is music and dancing. I mean, they are getting down. And this is the way the father responds to this son. And, and the most powerful point traditionally of this story is that no matter how far you are from God, God still loves you and salvation is still available to you through the cross of Jesus Christ. And that is a epic, powerful, thankful point that no matter how far you are from God, that God loves you, that Christ died for you, and you can have forgiveness of sins because of the work of Jesus on the cross. And all it takes is us returning to the Father, repenting to the Father. And then he lavishes us with sonship, with daughtership. Romans says he fills us with his spirit and his spirit testifies with our spirits that we are sons and daughters and that we can cry out to him, Abba, Father. This is epic. But we have to remember the point of the story is repentance. And we have to remember that he is not speaking to the sinners and the tax collectors. He's speaking to the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. And that there was not just one brother, but that there were two brothers. 
And so I want to look at repentance because it matters. I want to read this again uh, in verse uh, 20, uh, 19 and, and, and 20. Uh, it says, I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and he went to his father. The father ran out to him. Again, the son addressed him. This is what the son said. This is repentance. This is biblical repentance. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. There are three aspects of repentance that make it repentance. I know that there are some, I've done this before. This is, this is not untrue. This is not bad. It's just incomplete in my opinion. Some will say repentance just means a changing of your mind and a turning. And you, I'm sure you've, you've, you've been a part of some church service where a pastor said repentance is like this and he creates his path and he walks one way and he's like, I'm gonna repent. And he turns around and he goes the other direction. Sort of that's Repentance. Sort of, that's repentance. Yes, repentance is a changing of the mind. Yes, a repentance is a turning away and going in a different direction. But that is a, a, an incomplete picture of what biblical repentance is. This is biblical repentance. This is the only time and the most clear time at which Jesus gives us a painted picture of what repentance is. And this is the three elements of it. First, it is an acknowledgement of sin. An acknowledgement of sin. Not just an acknowledgement of who God is and who the Father is, but an acknowledgement of sin. And not just an acknowledgement that I have broken some laws, but remember the story. The story is who? About who? It is about someone who was as far from God as you could possibly be. And repentance is acknowledging sin in our lives, acknowledging the sin. The second part of repentance is not just acknowledging sin in your life, but acknowledging the depth of that sin and how it was totally and utterly against the God who created you. Sin is not simply a transgression of God's law. Sin is an act of war on God himself. Sin is devastating because it is against God. You see this pattern of repentance all throughout scripture, significantly in the Old Testament. You see this in Psalm 51 when David repents, fully repents, and he says, I have sinned, and my sin was only against you. Even though he had Uriah killed and slept with Bathsheba and had an, uh, an affair. But the, the, the heart of repentance is you recognize the sin in your life and you recognize that you have sinned against the God who created you. The power of repentance, and even to a believer, because yes, repentance is a big part of salvation, but repentance is a normal part of a follower of Christ's life. Because the closer that you get to God, the more holy you realize he is, the more righteous you realize he is, and the more sinner you realize you are, the more aware of the sins in your own heart and your own mind you become. It's like Isaiah, when he sees the glory of God in Isaiah 6, says, when I saw the glory of God lifted up in the throne, I saw the temple, uh, the, the, the uh, this train going through the temple, and I saw his glory. He said, there was something inside of me that broke, and he just fell down and repented. Uh, I'm a woe to me, I'm a man of unclean lips. If you're getting baptized, you can go ahead and go. 
And so th- this is the, this is the, the, the acknowledgement, not just that I'm a sinner, but that I have sinned against the God who created me. And the third part of repentance, and this one is, is so important, the acknowledgement of what your sin has done to your connection or your relationship with the God who created you. That it's not just I'm a sinner and it's not just that I've sinned against God, but it's that I acknowledge that my sin has broken and deeply, eternally severed any connection that I have with God. God is holy and righteous and perfect. And that when we, when we, in our sins, we did not just break a law here and there. We sinned against God and we severed that relationship that we have with God. That this is repentance. Like in Joel, when God calls the whole nation of Israel to come back to him fully with all of their hearts and to repent of their sins, he tells them, he says, acknowledge your sins against me. Acknowledge that they are against me. And it says, don't just rend your clothes, your garments. It said, rend your heart, break your heart for what you've done. Understand the severity of what you've done. Understand the severity of what you've lost. True repentance is not just an acknowledgement of sin. True repentance is not just an acknowledgement of that sin being against God. True repentance is those and acknowledging the fact that I am been completely severed myself from God. I am eternally separated from God. And when this quick little life uh, that I have disappears in death, that I will live forever apart from God. Uh, And it does not matter. People want to argue and debate how horrible hell is. All you need to know is you can't imagine how horrible it is. And that that's what you've bought yourself with your rebellion and your hostility and your mind towards God and your wickedness and your evil and your sin. The problem, I think that I have, and sometimes people get upset with me because they go, you know, you don't, you don't do the sinner's prayer thing a lot. And I'm like, I think there's a lot of people that's gonna go to hell because they did a sinner's prayer when they were eight years old and they never came to know what the heart of the gospel really was and what salvation really was. Salvation is not just repeating a prayer after somebody. Salvation is coming to terms with who you are, who God is, and what you've done to God in your sins that you are separated from him. And the only path to heal that sin relationship is the cross of Jesus Christ. And that yes, the fattened calf is a beautiful picture of Jesus. That the father, the father looked into your life and had compassion on you long before you even knew him. That while you were still lost, while you were still dead in your sins, while you were still wicked in the depths of your heart, is when he killed his own son to pay the price for you. That he satisfied that, that, that righteous judgment and that righteous wrath by sending his own son, Jesus, to suffer the death that you deserve, that we deserve. That that's the gospel. And what we're leading people to is not just salvation in, in terms of a prayer, not just uh, uh, coming to church and attending a church and doing church things. We're not trying to lead them to behavior change and behavior modification. What we cannot forget, church, is that we are to lead people to repentance and that it is repentance that heaven celebrates over. One sinner repenting and there is a 
party in heaven over this. That that's what we're really doing. When we say we're expanding and we're, we're going after and we're, we're living for the cause of Christ and we're trying to lead people to Jesus, we're trying to lead them to repentance. Not to say a prayer, not to join a membership, not to go on mission trips, not to be Christian, but to repent and be saved because repentance brings sonship and daughtership. And those who repent are filled with the spirit of God. And those who repent begin to truly follow Jesus Christ. But remember, he's not telling this story for the sake of the prodigal son. He's telling the story to address the situation. His target audience is the Pharisees and the religious leaders and their heart towards the situation. And so the story doesn't end. It says, meanwhile, while they're celebrating and they're feasting and they're celebrating the return of his son, it says, meanwhile, verse 25, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of his servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come. He replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father. Now, listen to the things that he says. Remember, we just went through repentance. Repentance is acknowledgement of sin, that we are sinners, acknowledgement that that sin is at God and directed against God, and acknowledgement that, that sin has severed our relationship with God that that's repentance. So I want you to see this. But, the, but he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. So the, the older brother, this is so important. The older brother does not view himself as a son of his father. He views himself as a slave. He does not, he does not have a, an affection towards the father. He simply, in the same way the, the brother, the little brother, he just views the father as, in, as something to get stuff from. And he's blinded to his own sin because he says, I've never disobeyed your orders. He views himself as a slave, blind to his own sin, no repentance whatsoever. Yet you've never given me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. This is the big one. This is, the, this is a significant one that plagues the heart of people since these days all the way to right now. It, it, not only does he have this slave mentality and this, 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 this unperfect mentality, this self-righteousness, this high view of himself, no repentance, he also feels like his behavior is deserving of something, at least a little bit. He said, I have performed well and you haven't given me nothing. No repentance whatsoever. But when this son of yours has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. Verse 30 is significant. This is the older brother. He's rejecting, in essence, the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's saying he is so undeserving that you would kill the fattened calf. He's so undeserving. His behavior, his performance, everything he's done, everything he said, it's so undeserving, yet you give him everything. This creates anger in his heart and anger in his mind. 
and he rejects the idea that the father would have mercy and that the father would celebrate the presence of his son and look past all of his sins and how far from his father that he went. So th this, is, this is Jesus trying to get us to see two things, what repentance looks like and what the lack of repentance looks like. And so he's not just driving at repent. He's saying, now listen, Pharisees, teachers of the law, I need you to understand. I need you to gather this, that you could be around the temple like they were. You could have access to the law of God or to the Bible like they were. That you could perform very well in your life and learn how to behave and, and be, a, be a super good person that you could do all the right things, that you could grow up in church, that you could come and say the prayer every time it's asked, but that there is not genuine repentance. You are just as lost as the younger son was. And the most terrifying part of this is the father's outside pleading with him to what? To come into the celebration to come into the music, to come into the dancing, to be a part of that freedom that salvation brings, to be a part of that joy that true repentance brings, to be a part of that, that, that party. And he, in his self-righteousness and in his religious nature, he does not come in and he walks away. And so as we lay the foundation for us expanding and us reaching our heart and our goal is to lead people who are far from God to repentance. And it is also our goal to lead people who are very religious away from their religion to repentance. This is not a story of one lost and one found. This is a story of two lost sons and one amazing good father. And that we are not, not trying to build up a religious force and we're not trying to lead people into behavior modification, that we are trying to lead people to repentance because when they repent, heaven celebrates because that's the point of why Jesus came to this earth, to die for our sins. And if you can't acknowledge your sin and you can't acknowledge that your sin was against God and you can't acknowledge that your sin severed your relationship with God, then you will never acknowledge the beauty and the majesty of the sacrifice that Jesus made for you on the cross. And at best, you will give yourself over to a life of religion. And so this morning, in just a few minutes, we're gonna celebrate people who have repented, people who have given uh, their hearts over to Christ, put their faith in Jesus, and are going public with their faith in baptism. But I wanna give an offering this morning to every heart and every mind in this room, to everybody at House Church. If God is leading you to repentance, and you have never truly repented of your sins, and you've never had that moment in your life, and listen, Repentance is gonna be a part of salvation and repentance is never gonna stop being a part of salvation. Can I get an amen? amen? True repentance is where freedom comes from. True repentance is where salvation comes from. True repentance, even in the life of a believer, 
is what Jesus' goal is in our life because there's joy in repentance. There's celebration in repentance. There's freedom in repentance. And in religion, there's fear, there's slave mentality, there's anger, there's frustration. And so this morning, if you do not know the Lord and you feel the Holy Spirit bringing conviction into your life, I encourage you, I challenge you, I beg of you, come talk to us and we will lead you through that repentant moment if you want us to. And if you do know the Lord and you still feel the Holy Spirit pricking your heart and you've stepped more into that religion mode, let the Lord humble you and bring you back to a state of repentance and turn your life fully over to Jesus Christ. Uh, as we do the baptism, we're gonna go to worship in a minute. If you feel like you want a moment with the Lord, I'm gonna be sitting right up here. I'm gonna take my mic off. I'll be sitting right up here on the front row. If you want me to pray with you, I would love to do that. Uh, if, if you don't wanna do it in a public manner, we'll also be outside at, at the tent if you wanna talk to us there. But don't leave this moment. I love you guys with all my heart. What we wanna do is we wanna lead people to repentance salvation in Christ. If you guys will stand with me.